Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Well, good morning. That was a, that was a wonderful hymn. And may indeed the Lord be glorified in all of our lives as we seek Him every day. Well, um, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. If it's your first time with us this morning, uh, we are in a, a long series in the book of Acts. We are taking our time studying each verse and context to hear uh, the message of Acts. And so this morning we found ourselves in Acts chapter 3. Let me just give you a bit of a recap to remind you of where we are. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is depicted by Luke as rising up from the dead and ascending into heaven. And the, 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 the church is there uh, after she, he, he gives her uh, her marching orders to be witnesses for him um, until he returns. Um, they, they then uh, go to receive the Holy Spirit. We saw that in Acts chapter 2. Uh, they receive the Holy Spirit and the, the Spirit enables them to speak in other languages. We saw that announcing that God dwells with man and the gospel is for the nations. Um, and then Peter preaches a message to the people in Acts chapter 2. Uh, and and 3,000 of those people who hear him uh, get added into the church. And as we saw last week, they, we, we saw the life that they lived as they fellowship with one another um, in this new community, this new humanity that God is, uh, is working in. And so now we find ourselves here uh, in chapter 3 and uh, an episode where Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. So let's uh, uh, read uh, from verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, 
all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico that is called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One, asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the present of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as, all, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things that God which spoke by the mouths of the holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him have also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is God's word. I don't know if you've ever uh, overheard, perhaps by mistake or by intention, overheard a conversation between people that was not directed at you, but has implications for you. Perhaps as a, you, you, perhaps as a child, you're walking past your, your, your parents, uh, they're sitting in the kitchen, they're talking, and they're perhaps talking about uh, how there's, no, there's little money at the moment in the house. And so you immediately know uh, that there are implications for you. You are going to go without certain luxuries. Um, this, this morning's text is a little like that. Um, there is a sign from God to the Israelites, and Peter explains the sign to the Israelites, and we today, this morning, are invited by Luke to overhear this conversation between God, Peter, and the Israelites, so that we can learn some important informations about ourselves here this morning. The text in front of us is a resounding call to faith in Jesus Christ to the Israelites, but not only to the Israelites, 
to all the nations. In this text, in Christ Jesus, faith in Christ Jesus is shown to be a powerful reality. By faith in the name of Jesus Christ, a paralyzed man received complete healing. By faith in Jesus Christ, the greatest sin ever committed is said to be forgivable. By faith in Jesus Christ, countless people will have their sins blotted out. And finally this morning in this text, by faith in Jesus Christ, the nations will receive true and lasting blessing. The key issue, however, in the text is not so much the faith of the person as much as it is the object of the faith. Peter, in his sermon, emphasizes that it is Jesus Christ who is at the very center of salvation. He makes it clear to his hearers that there is no escaping the reality of Jesus' importance to the grand salvation plan that God has for his people. Jesus' centrality to salvation becomes a rallying cry for everyone. Salvation has arrived. Come and get your fill. Peter and John are like two men running through the streets of a town, telling everyone that freedom and life is now available to anyone who but believe. The point, the thrust, the energy of this text in front of us is to lead you this morning, dear Heritage Baptist Church, to know two things and to know them clearly. One, salvation and blessing is available to you entirely. And two, you can access it by faith in Jesus Christ. This text in front of us will call you, beckon you, and direct you that the place to fix your eyes is Jesus Christ. He is the focal point by which God means to bring us all true and lasting blessing. First, we are told of this miracle that Peter and John perform at the hour of, at the hour of prayer by the gate of the temple. Look at verse 1. By now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. So here is a man who from his birth has never walked. This man suffers the indignity of being carried every day to the temple so that he can beg. His life is that of begging. In order for us to understand the significance of this healing that's about to take place here, we must pause at the situation. The existence of a man who came out of his mother's womb unable to walk leaves us with many questions. Why was he born this way? Did something happen? Did someone do something? How can a person be, be, be subjected to such an indignity his whole life? And the questions go beyond him. Um, they, they go to all the things that are obviously wrong in the world today. All the hatred and wars and, and car accidents and hijackings and natural disasters and cancer that plagues us. When we're confronted with human suffering, we're forced to wonder, why is the world this way? 
Why is, the, why is it possible that a man can come out of his mother's womb not knowing how to walk? And the, the Bible confronts these questions head on. The human suffering that we see in the world is a result of sin destroying the fabric of life. When Adam and Eve sinned, and all of their children after them have sinned since, that has caused a cascade of hardship, of pain and hurt, because the entire planet is not as it should be. God designed man to be with him, but man in his rebellion, the earth was cursed, and people are now deformed. More often than not, we are reminded that things are not as they should be. Do you know those, um, those people who like to, uh, to oversimplify things? Um, uh, perhaps you're that person yourself. Uh, the issues, there's a particular issue that's perhaps being discussed, and there, there, there are many factors that lead to this issue, but the person just comes with a very simple, uh, simple, simple answer for why things are the way they are. Well, in, usually, that's not usually right and helpful to just come with a simple solution to a complex uh, situation. There's usually a whole host of reasons as to why things they are. But when it comes to the complex situation of our planet, when it comes to the diseases that cause pain, the natural disasters that take tons of people's lives, all the theft and evil that we experience, all of it is here because we have no peace with God. The answer is rather simple. It is sin. Sin is the reason. It does not necessarily mean that it is man's sin, hence he was born this way. But because sin exists, since sin was introduced to the fabric of the world, then it became a thing that people are born deformed. And Luke is concerned with showing us in both Luke and Acts that Jesus Christ has the power to reverse the effects of sin. The many miracles that Jesus performs are all attesting to the reality of his ability not just to eliminate the effects of sin, but to eliminate sin itself. You, you see, when, when you see Jesus in the Gospels going around healing people who are blind, who are paralyzed, who are dead, having compassion on people who are suffering, what he is doing as he does all of those healings is that he is announcing and telling everyone that he is able to deal with the disease itself, not just all of these symptoms. And that is what we hear, we see here this morning. Look at verse 3 as, as Peter and as the, the healing happens. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, recognized him as one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were all filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. 
Let us notice a, a few things that Luke makes evident about this healing. First, the man here was not expecting to be healed. He was just asking for money. They had to actually call him to pay attention to him, to them. Did you see that? Look at us. You can imagine this. You're, you're sitting in front of the temple. You're always asking for help. You probably don't want to look people in the eye. The shame that goes with the position that he has in his life. The lowliness of his estate. He is a man who cannot provide for himself. And he has to depend on the generosity of others. But like Jesus does in the Gospels, Peter and John connect with him. Look at us. God has seen your plight and today you will be healed. There is a despondency that we feel when we are weak. There is a despondency that goes with our condition. There is a despondency that, that goes with the fact that we are not God. That we are actually unable to help ourselves. But God, being the God who sees, wants us to know that He sees us and wants to fix the issue. He sees us. He wants us to know that He sees us. He will not just free us, but in freeing us, He wants us to know that He sees us. He is with us. Oftentimes, in the Gospels, when Jesus heals someone, you would think He has some grand theological reason for doing it. But the Gospels say, He looked at the person and had compassion for them. He looked at the person and had compassion. When there was that widow who had a son, who was, the son was being taken to, to, die, to, to his grave, he had died. This widow was left all alone. The Lord Jesus looked at her in her grief, was moved with compassion, and he raised the, son, and he raised the young man up. It is possible, even as you feel today, perhaps, you feel your weakness, you feel your need, you must know that God sees he is called in the Bible El Roy, the God who sees. He is not ignorant of his people's suffering. Well, the second thing that Luke points out very clearly to us is that Peter commands him to walk. In Christ's name, Peter is able to call this lame man to walk. He tells him that he will give him what he has. He, does, he doesn't have silver and gold to give him, but what he has is healing in Christ's name. Notice that Luke points out that the healing is immediate and observable. It is a taste of heaven on earth when all of life's problems will be washed away. This man has never walked and here, in faith, by faith in Christ's name, he takes his first steps. And he sees that he is able to. There's, this is a taste of what will happen when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Those who have never walked will walk. Those who have struggled with the effects of abuse will live lives of freedom that they have never known. Those who are constantly anxious will know a worry-free life. They will know what a worry-free life feels like. Those who have had to beg for most of their lives will know the joy of having an eternal abundance. Those who have fought their sin, who have had to fight daily with their own destructive patterns, will leap for joy at the complete annihilation of their weaknesses. 
You see, this, this, healing is, this healing is a taste of heaven on earth. It is a taste of the life to come. It is signaling that there is a life that is to come that is beautiful and fresh and full of refreshment when sin and disease are destroyed forever. This healing is significant, especially for the Jews. You see, the Jews knew that their Messiah comes to give them relief from life's troubles. They were being taken over by this empire and that empire. And they were, being, they were sinning this and that way. They were having famines and, and rough life. And they were, had their hope on the Messiah. That the Messiah is going to come and is going to give them relief. And when Jesus comes, God uses miraculous signs as an, as an announcement. That here is the one whom the relief that you are waiting for has come by. It is faith in this man. God has always, in in the history of the Jews, He has always used miracles, miraculous signs as as moments of announcement to announce when He's doing something. When Moses asked, you'll remember at the burning bush, when he asked, how will they know that you sent me? God told him to take hold of the staff that he had. And when when he took hold of the staff, the staff turned into a snake. And then he he put it down and then it turned back into a staff. And that formed a pattern. That started a pattern of authenticating a message that God is bringing. The Lord Jesus Christ did the same when he arrived. Jesus Christ confirms this pattern in Luke chapter 5. When when they, 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 they bring a lame man to him and he sees their faith and he tells the man that your sins are forgiven. But everybody is doubting. Who are you? How can you say that this man's sins are forgiven? And then he says, okay, so that you guys know that I have the authority, I have the power to forgive sins, let me heal this man to prove it to you. You see, the significance of this miracle is not just that this man was healed, it is a sign. His healing is an announcement to the Jews that eternal life is here through Jesus Christ. And notice thirdly that a crowd gathers as people who had seen this man for many years begging air at the temple. They now see him walking up and down, jumping up and down, leaping and praising God. I want you to notice in verses 9 and 10 that Luke wants us to note something important. That this man was known. This man was known to the people. This man's disease was known. The whole town knew him as one of the town beggars. So for everyone to see him now walking is a testament that something amazing is happening. You see, Luke makes it clear that a true miracle here is a sign to Christ. I hope you notice here that people aren't wondering if this is a true miracle or not. Did you notice this? There's no discussion here about whether or not truly a miracle has happened because everybody knows the guy and everybody can see the guy now running around. Okay. No one is asking another person if this truly happened, if this can be tested. Everybody knows because it is that obvious. This is not happening at a stadium with paid actors. 
This is real, measurable, and it is self-evident. And what's more, the sermon that follows this points to Jesus Christ and not to the men who have done the miracle. I hope you are picking up what I'm trying to lay down here. But if you're not, let me be more clear. If, if you have to, if, if you are seeing something that looks like a public miracle, and you have to wonder whether or not the miracle is genuine, then you know that it does not meet the standard of the miracles in the New Testament. Because miracles are a sign, and signs are self-evident. If you're driving on a road, and here's a yield sign, here's a little triangular yield sign, you see it. You see the sign, and then you think, oh, I'm going to have to yield. You don't wonder whether or not you saw the sign. You're not figuring out whether or not the sign is, is actually there or not. Is it, the sign is there, it's obvious, it's evident, and it's pointing to something else. So we have, to, we, have to sometimes, we have to now figure out what the sign means, but the sign itself is evident. See, that is what true miracles are. They are self-evident. And the miracles in the New Testament, do no, you don't need to ask yourself, is it real, is something? No, it's evident because it's pointing to something. It would not be made doing its purpose if we have to wonder whether or not it actually happened. You understand what I'm saying? That is why that when they make signs on the road, they make them very clear and loud so that we know that we saw them. They catch, up, they catch our attention even at night. That's the whole purpose of the sign. If you, do, you doubt whether or not you saw the sign, then you did not. Then what just happened in front of you or what you're being told to believe is not in accord with the New Testament miracle. What, it, what is more is that the sign is not the end in itself. It points to something else. The sign is not the main attraction. No, when you see a stop sign, you don't feel like, oh, let me take the stop sign home with me. This is, what a great stop sign. When you're driving, you know you just need to stop. It's telling you something needs to happen. You don't, you don't think, man, let me decorate this. It's not the attraction. It's pointing to something. When you see those people when there's a when there's a construction on the road and the guy and there's a person there doing this with the red with the red uh, flag, you don't you don't stand there and say, "What a great show!" You say, "Oh, okay, I need to be aware something's about to happen, so let me drive in a particular way." You understand what I'm saying to you? Signs are not the attraction. Signs are not the main thing that gathers people. Signs just point to something else. So what am I getting at? Let me be clear. Just like Israel did not have Moses and Joshua throughout their existence prior to the coming of Christ, the New Testament makes it evident that we should not expect miracle workers in our midst throughout the time that we wait for Jesus to return. Miracle workers in the early church performed a function of announcing the new message in the same way that Moses and Joshua were announcing a new message. In the same way, we, we are, Moses and Joshua did not live with the Israelites throughout. There was not always a miracle worker throughout the life of Israel. In the same way for us, the signs were just an announcement, but they were not always to be there. 
This is why I want to drive this point home, my dear friends, this morning. Because here's the thing. Expecting people to be miracle workers today leaves us open to a lot of confusion and opens us up to spiritual manipulation and abuse. If you have an expectation that someone is going to be a miracle worker today, then you are opening yourself up to spiritual abuse and spiritual manipulation. Why? Because that person is not a miracle worker. It doesn't exist. God never said we should expect them. So that person really isn't a miracle worker. So now this person is going to have to manipulate you and spiritually abuse you so that you can believe that they are a miracle worker. You, to, to, to protect yourself, do not expect things that God said not to expect. There's no reason for you to expect that a singular person is going to walk around the country now being a massive miracle worker. They're all charlatans. If they say that, they're charlatans and liars. And they're trying to to capitalize on your expectation. So let me encourage you, my dear friends. Do not expect things that God has never said you should expect. But then one of you will ask me, does God still do miracles today? Yes, He does. Yes, He does. But it is clear to me that He does them as a response to His people praying, to strengthen them, to glorify Himself, rather than as a permanent gift of healing on a person. He does it when we come together to pray because one of us is sick, or one of us has a situation, and we're, 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 real, we're praying that the Lord intervenes, either supernaturally or naturally, but we're praying, Lord, please intervene. When the Lord intervenes, it is so that we can be strengthened, so that we can return thanks to Him and glorify Him, and so that He can be glorified by us. It is not so that we can praise whoever it is that loudly prayed in front of us. So let me encourage you, dear saints, to watch out for this. Protect yourself from, from charlatans. Protect yourself from Sangomas claiming to be pastors. Protect yourself. Do not expect something that God has never said you should expect. Well, next, Peter then stands up to explain to everyone what just happened. And in his sermon, he he begins first by quelling a possible misunderstanding. Look with me at verse 11. Look at verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Peter wants to make it clear to the people here that he and John are not the reason why this man is healed. He wants to make it very clear. As the people rush to them to stare at them, as the, everybody's coming now and everybody's astounded, everybody's looking at Peter and John thinking, wow, Peter and Peter, the first thing Peter does is to say, it's not about us. We're not the guy. And look at what he says. There's two things he says he does not have. It is not because of these two things. It is not because of our own power. 
He says, we did not produce the power required to make this person healthy. We do, we, there's no power that emanates from us. We are not the light bulb that gives off energy. It's not us. There's nothing special about us, such a degree that this man can be healed. There's no power that lives in us that we can call and command so that this man can be healed. It's not us. Second, it's not our piety. See that? It's not our own power or piety. It's not our own holiness. It's not because we're so special, that we're so holy, that we walk so above everybody else, that when we want to heal people, people are healed. It's not because of our own holiness. We are not the person that has caused this this person to live. What a complete contradiction to what we see today. What a complete contradiction. Peter says, it's not me, it's not my power, it's not my power, it's not my piety. Today, the stadiums and the signs that you see all over the country would make you think that it is because of this man and this woman's power and piety. What a complete contradiction. But Peter here says, it's not us. Don't look at us. Don't marvel at us. There's nothing about us. Uh, Don't think that we are the special ones. As a witness and servant of Christ, Peter does not want people to exalt him. He does not want people to attribute such power to him. There is a lesson for us here, dear saints. There is an enduring lesson for us. You see, there is a great temptation to pat yourself in the back after you've done works of service. Yeah? If God has used you in someone's life, or if you've done your, what you have, you've done your duty, you've been useful, you, you, you've helped someone, you've done something that, wow, praise the Lord, this, this has made an impact in someone's life. There is a great temptation to pat yourself on the back. But we must be aware that one of the most blasphemous things you can do is to take credit for God's work. To take, to take credit for God's work is a blasphemous and dangerous thing. Isaiah 42 sets this lesson well. In verse 8, God says this, I am Yahweh, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise do I give to carved idols. See, God often in the scriptures talks about how he's, he's there to care for people. He's there, he's there for anybody who is lowly, anyone who needs his help. But do you know who's the one person that God says he opposes? There's one person that he says he's against. Not that, not, not that he, he stands aside and lets this person do his own thing. Not that he just, oh, I'm going to remove my resources and not help you. No, he's against this person. Do you know who that person is? The proud. The proud. He gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. It is a dangerous thing to take credit and glory and praise for what God did. It is an act of treason. Yes, we must be thankful when by God's grace we have been obedient and we did what scripture commands us and the Lord has blessed our work. Yes, we must be thankful and we must ask the Lord to help us to do it again. But we must remember the attitude that the Lord Jesus told his disciples to have. In Luke chapter 17 verse 10, 
the Lord Jesus says this to these disciples. He says this. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded to do, say this. We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. When you start listening to your own reputation, when you start singing to your own hymn sheet, when you start even writing the lines that people will praise you by, you are in serious trouble. And we must, we must make sure that that doesn't happen with us. We must just have this attitude that Luke 17.10 says, that we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. But not only is this, a, this is a, a great warning for us, it's also a great encouragement. Who is the one who fights for his people? Who is the healer of his people? Who is the one who knows what challenges you face and commits to being your refuge? Who is the one who commits to being your hiding place, your place of safety and deep rest? Who is the one that tells you that you can trust him always, that you can always cry out to him? It's the Lord. It's not the person that the Lord used in your life. It's the Lord. It's not the person that came to you and applied God's word and you were helped. It's the Lord that's your refuge, not the person. And because you see, this is a great encouragement because the Lord is constant, isn't he? You don't find the Lord today dealing with a headache and not wanting to talk to you. You don't, you don't come to the Lord tomorrow and he's just not having a great day. Look, let's talk tomorrow. You don't find the Lord having a busy schedule. I'm sorry, could you send... I, I saw your WhatsApp message, but I'll respond to it in two days' time. People do that because people are human and finite. But you don't find that with the Lord, do you? The Lord is there. He's constant. He's available to you. And He is your refuge, your ever-present help. That is why He is the one that should, you should always attribute your help from. Where does your help come from? Not from men. It comes from the Lord. And you, that's a great encouragement to us because we know what to expect. You talk to your, you talk to your friend. I mean, you don't know what to expect some days. People are grumpy and grouchy. It's rainy today. But by the Lord's grace, if we, if we, just, we just attribute only to God, when we, when we just always go to God and make sure that in our minds we know who it is that is our healer, we will not be greatly disappointed. Because He, does, he disappoints no one. Well, Peter goes on in his address here. Look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. If, if, if it is not Peter and John that have made this smell well by their power and piety, if it's not Peter and John, then who has? 
Who's the one that is to be blamed? Who's the one that is to be praised? Who's the one that is to be glorified and thanked for this man today who has never walked in his life, now walking and jumping and leaping? Who is it? Peter answers this question unequivocally. It is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It is the same Jesus Christ that the Jews killed, that the, that the same Jesus that they gave over to Pilate to be killed, even when Pilate had decided to release him. It is that same Jesus who is alive today and has by his power and his piety made this man well. And how did it come about? How did it come about that Jesus did that? See, Jesus is not here physically in front of them. So how did, how did Jesus heal the man? By faith in his name. By faith in him. When Peter commanded the man to walk, he commanded him in the name of Jesus Christ. And healing power through Christ's name was made available to the man. And the man grabbed a hold of it by faith in his name. The power to heal his body came into him and made him well. You see, when you read here, the man responded to the call of faith by Peter. The man did not resist. When Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk, the man did not say, I do not believe in that name. The man did not say, what, what, who's that? The man believed in the name that was given to him that he might be healed by, and he held on to Peter's hand and leaped up in faith. He responded to the name that was given to him. And by that man's name, by Jesus Christ's name, this man was healed. Notice the simplicity of the faith that this man has. It is so simple that you can miss it in the verses before this. Unless Peter had told us, we would have missed it. It is so simple. He just told him, in the name of Christ Jesus, I command you, walk. And he walked and he, he stood up. What's a, a childlike trust. It's not sophisticated at all. Do you see how simple it is to receive blessing from Christ? Do you see how simple it is to receive life from Christ? This is an allegory. This is an analogy for us. This is how simple it is. You don't need to have the most sophisticated faith, understanding the whole realm of the universe and how everything works. You don't need to have a, 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 a higher grade theology degree. It is just a simple trust, a childlike trust. I have heard that in this name there is relief for my disease. I'm going to jump at the opportunity that I am afforded. I have heard that in, the, in, the, in this name, life can be found. Forgiveness can be found. I've done many bad things. I've done horribly. But because I have heard that in this name, people live, I'm going to jump on it myself. It is a simple faith. It is a, it is a simple trust. It's a childlike, uncomplicated trust. A simple trust in his name and responding to the call of faith. That is what it takes to receive blessing from Christ. Trust in His name. But whose name? Notice that Peter, in these verses, calls Jesus a number of different names. Did you notice that? Look, in verse 13, he calls Him God's servant. 
In verse 14, he calls him the holy and righteous one. In verse 15, he calls him the author of life. These names are selected by Peter from the Old Testament to thrust into the minds of the Israelites that this is the one, this is the Messiah, this is the one in whom if you place your trust in Him, your trust is not misplaced. You see, at the risk of the Israelites imagining perhaps that there might be another to come, there might be another one who's called by other names, Peter selects these names to thrust it in that this is the one that we're waiting for. There is no other. There is no other name that we might be given so that we might be saved. It is only the name of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 17, he invites them to trust in this Jesus. Look at verse 17. And now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive, until the time of restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, and you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. So what does Peter say as he now calls them to repent? First he says, you didn't know what you were doing. You were acting in ignorance. Uh, Do you remember when the Lord Jesus Christ was was up there on the tree, uh, dying, having done nothing wrong, and his people, his own people, whom he had weeped over, whom he had loved and wanted to gather, had cried just a few hours before, cried for his head, wanted him to die. And Christ is is there in incredible pain, drinking the wrath of God for the sins of mankind. He looked upon these people and he prayed one prayer. Do you remember the prayer? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. See, the Lord understands the weaknesses of men. The Lord understands that people sin sometimes out of ignorance. And so He offers them a way back, a way to restoration. You acted in ignorance, so, and, and through your actions, God has fulfilled His plan. We discussed this two weeks ago when we saw Peter's other sermon. We explained how their actions and God's plan came together. In a, in, a, in a wonderful way, so that Christ can die and people can be forgiven. And so, in light of this, he's, he's, he's approaching them with softness. He's saying, listen, I know you, you were ignorant. You didn't, you didn't know what you were doing. So let me tell you what you can do now. This is, this is, this is, I hope you can see this is instructive even in our evangelism. There, there, there is a need sometimes when we, when we show people their sins... To also meet them where they are. Say, okay, listen, here's the, the, we can be soft. 
We can be personal. We can say, listen, God understands. You didn't know. You've been in ignorance. But now, here's what you must do. He says, repent and turn back from your, your, your sinful rejection of Jesus. He says to them, you guys rejected him. You were acting in ignorance. Okay, now repent and believe so that you might receive blessing from God. If they were to repent, if they were to turn back from their rejection of Christ and, and they would turn to him and embrace him as their Messiah, embrace him as their Savior, there are three blessings that would follow that Peter says here. Three things that will follow here. First, you see he says, your sins will be blotted, blotted out. In other words, you, Jews, have committed the greatest sin ever committed. To kill the Son of Man, Him having done nothing wrong. The trial was a shambles. It was a complete farce. He was completely innocent. And you decided together to kill Him. But even that great sin, even that evil, that great evil that you did, can be completely blotted out if you were to repent and come back to Him. He is not right now looking at you with fire and vengeance. He is looking at you with the call, come and receive life. I hope you can see yourself as I'm explaining the, the, what's being offered to the Jews. Whatever sin, whatever evil, whatever pain that you've caused other people, how, however you've perhaps been a perpetual victimizer of other people, however you have manipulated and destroyed lives, even that sin, whatever it is, can be blotted out. Jesus' blood can come in and remove it from the pages of existence. If only you were to repent and believe. But it's not only that that it will come. It's also times of refreshing. Verse 20. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The times of refreshing here refer to the idyllic fellowship with God and peaceful life that the prophets have always connected with the coming of the Messiah. These times of refreshing will be completely enjoyed by God's people when Christ returns. But for now, while we wait His return, we get just little tastes of these times of refreshing. We get little tastes of them. When we see the nations added, when we see people in many different countries added to believing in Christ, it's a taste of heaven and earth. It's a taste of times of refreshing. When we experience worship on Sunday morning, it is a taste of times of refreshing. When we rest from our labors together and enjoy each other's fellowship, it is a taste of the times of refreshing. When brothers and sisters dwell together in perfect harmony and unity, it is a taste of the times of refreshing. But let me tell you, it is only a faint taste. What is coming is true refreshing. What is coming is real life. When the Son of God returns on the clouds, His people will experience refreshing like nothing they've imagined before. And the third thing, that he says will, will happen to them here if they repent and believe is that God will send the Messiah to them that they were expecting. Now understand what he's saying here. 
Whether or not the Israelites repent does not stop Christ from coming back. So that's not what he's saying. But rather, this is what he's saying. If they do not repent and, re- and, and run to Christ, then they will not participate in the eternal blessings that, the pro- that are promised at the second coming of the Messiah. If they do not repent, they will not receive the blessings that they've been so waiting for. It's only those who have believed in the Messiah now that will benefit entirely from his second coming. He therefore, you see, he quotes Moses in verse 23. When he quotes Moses that, that you should listen to this prophet, you should listen to the prophet who comes. Um, but if you do not listen to this prophet who comes, what's going to happen? You shall be cut off, you shall be destroyed from the people. So just because they are Jewish does not automatically mean that when the Christ comes a second time, they will receive blessing. No. It is only if they believe in him now, before he comes back, will they then receive blessing from heaven. It is the same for you. It is foolish, foolhardy to believe that not believing in Christ now will give you some kind of leniency in heaven. It is foolhardy to trust in anything else. The Jews would have been tempted to trust in their identity. We're Jews. You would be, would be foolish as they are to trust in other things. To trust in your, your surname. To trust in your works. To trust in the things that you've done for church. To trust in all the money that you've given to churches and all these things. To trust in anything else except the Lord Jesus Christ. To truly have Him as your Messiah. It is foolish to expect that you will receive any blessing from Him. But, because you are hearing this today, the blessing is available. Repent and come to Christ. And you will get tastes, you will get small tastes of the, of the times of refreshing. But when He returns, your, your hope will not be disappointed. You will truly see what it is that you were waiting for. And then in verse 25, He reminds the Jews that this is now the time by which the blessing of the Jews and the nations that was promised to Abraham has come. Look at verse 25 as we come to an end. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, Jews, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Here he's, he's, he's reminding them that there was blessing promised to the Jews and not only to the Jews but to all the nations that was promised all the way back to Abraham. So what is that blessing? What is this blessing that, they were, that it was promised that has now come? Refreshment. Refreshment. In a world of dry ground, in a world of hardship, in a world where we know and feel consistently and always that things are not the way that they should be, there is a refreshment, a peace with God that has been promised to the, to the nations. Let me ask you this, are you burdened at all with life's heaviness? Are you, are you here this morning and you're wondering if all of it's worth it? If there's any need to even continue living? Let me encourage you. By faith in Jesus Christ, 
You can secure a future for yourself that is full of refreshment and peace. If you believe in Christ, you will have your sins forgiven now. And He will give you His Spirit as a down payment, as a guarantee of your eternal blessing. And afterward, you will be secure. So therefore, trust in Him. Trust in Him. Do not waver. Dear Christians, do not waver. Trust. Hold on. Hold fast to the hope that you have. That the fullness of the refreshment is coming. The fullness of the blessing is coming. It has now come. We're now reconciled with God. We have eternal life. But the fullness of it is coming when the Lord returns. You know, uh, investment advisors always tell you to never put your eggs in one basket. Never only invest in property or never only invest in the stock market, etc. And that's because there's so many things that could happen and it's better to just invest widely. But let me tell you this. If you want to have true refreshment, if you want to have a secure future, put all of your eggs, including the chicken, in this basket. In this one basket. There is no need to look for other baskets. All of them are broken baskets. They all have holes. This is the only basket to put your your whole life into if you want lasting, true blessing. Trust in this, in this Messiah, and He will give you refreshment. He'll give you a taste of it now. When you're parched now, He'll give you drinks, little drinks, little drinks. But man, when He returns, you will not be able to handle all the refreshment they will give you. Let's pray. O great Messiah of God, O King given to us from God, how can we describe you? We can describe you as a servant of God. We can describe you as the author of life. We can describe you as the Holy and Righteous One. But is that enough? Is it enough to describe your splendor and majesty, O Lord Jesus? Is it enough to praise you for all that you've done for us in our lives, as you've you've changed us from darkness to light? Oh, not many of us were wise, not many of us were noble. We were just trotting along, but by your mercy and grace you came into us. And you changed us and you gave us an inheritance far beyond what we can imagine. Oh, how blessed it is to have you as our Messiah. How what a blessing it is to have you as our Lord and King. And I ask, oh Lord, reveal yourself by your mercy and grace to any here this morning who does not know even a taste of refreshment. That those who are here burdened with life, burdened with sin... Oh Lord, reveal yourself to them that they might repent and turn and come to you so that they might have life and life everlasting. And for us, your people, those who have trusted in you, oh Lord, we ask that you continue to refresh us, continue to give us refreshing, even as we walk in this dark and cold world. Continue to give us tastes of the, of the heavenly blessing so that when... We're we're walking here. We, We are reminded of your goodness so that we can return thanks to you. We pray all of this in your wonderful name.
in your matchless name, in a name that is above every name that has ever existed. The name of Christ of Nazareth. Amen.